the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper on the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotograph's editor, Eno Saris, and today we'll be discussing a couple of Tigers and the starting pitcher value leaderboard All-Stars. And today's most interesting player alive today is the Game 5 starter for the Tigers, Justin Verlander. And by all accounts, for... A normal starting pitcher this year that Justin Verlander had would have been a, a solid performance from a fantasy standpoint. But for Justin Verlander, this had to be a disappointment. Only 13 wins, 346 ERA, and a 131 whip. This was a disappointing year, right, you know? Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, the risk when you pay a lot for a pitcher is that they go down and you, you don't get anything all year. So... You know, the fact that he still, you know, pitched all year, got you 13 wins and got you 217 strikeouts, which is, you know, really awesome, actually, for a starting pitcher, um, probably meant that it wasn't one of those worst case scenario type deals. Do you think maybe we were just spoiled by the last two seasons, 240 ERA in 2011, obviously the MVP, 24 wins, 264 ERA in 2012, but before that... This year would have fit right in, 337 ERA, 345, then that one bad 2008, nearly a 5 ERA, but 366, 363. So maybe it was a 2011 and 2012 that <coughs> increased his perceived value and made us think he was a, a little better than he actually was. I mean, those were some awesome seasons. and You know, I'm not going to have Clayton Kershaw next year. You know, it's just like, when when these guys have these big seasons, you know, it's there's no true talent, you know, two ERA guy who's going to do that for his career. You know, that's just not going to happen. So when a guy does, you know, puts it up for two straight years, people think, oh, this is the guy, you know. But, you know, other than the whip, uh, a 346 ERA, other than the whip and the wins, this is a great season. You know, I mean, for some reason, his battle was a little high this year. His walk rate was a little bit worse than usual, and he only won 13 wins. But, you know, you can't really predict wins because he was on a great team. He could have easily have won, you know, 16, 17. Even with the stats he had, he could have won 16 or 17. And then you would have been talking about a guy who struck out 200 guys, had a three ERA, and 17 wins. Uh, sounds like an ace to me. You just paid too much for him. He did finish strong in September with a 2.27 ERA, a 2.83 xFIP, and what was really interesting, I think, is that you mentioned his walk rate was up, but what's odd about that is that his first strike percentage was actually at a career high. You don't see that normally. The best first strike percentage at 65%. That's really good. That's way above the league average, and yet his walk rate was at its highest mark since 2008. So it's strange. It doesn't really match up, and it suggests to me that he's still pretty close to the ace that he's always been. He just didn't have as good luck as he had previously. Yeah, and I think there were some mechanical issues. At the beginning of the season, um, his velocity was down you know, compared to his career, 
Um, and uh, he got that up in the in the final couple of months. He was averaging around 95 again. So, um, you know, I do, and he did say that he was dealing with some mechanical things. And I wrote a thing for ESPN Insider that had, you know, that showed his release points. And he, I think he either moved on the rubber or, or figured something out with release points because there was a good ending to the season. Um, and you know, he's been lights out in the postseason and tonight's going to be, you know, going to be rough on the A's, but, um, you know, I actually might own Justin Verlander next year. If, if this, uh, performance has, has, uh, dinged him enough where he shows up in the third and fourth rounds or, or later. Yeah. And you mentioned his velocity did improve and to quantify that in the first half, he was averaging only 92.7 miles an hour. And it was weird seeing him come out in the game and throwing 91, 92. I mean, everybody knows that Verlander is a freak and he throws harder as the game goes on. But that harder was only like 95, 96 later in the game. Whereas usually in the past, he would start the game out 93, 94 and then get it up to 98, 99. So his velocity was clearly down in the first half. But that improved dramatically in the second half. He was at 94 average over the second half. That's a big jump in the second half. We know velocity does tend to creep up as the season wears on. But gaining 1.3 miles an hour is a significant increase. So you have to think that the, the, uh, the mechanical issues was a legit excuse. And the velocity loss isn't as big of a deal. And he was basically sitting the same as he was last year. Yeah, I think – you know, I. I definitely think if I see, you know, I'll be really tempted. Now, I think second round is still too early. I really don't like to take pitchers in the second round. But, um, you know, if it's one of these 15-teamers or you know, it's an experts league where I kind of feel like taking a chance or something, you know, I'll get Justin Verlander in the second. Um, I mean, I think he's figured a lot of things out, and he seems like a really healthy dude. I mean, that's famous last words, of course. But uh, he's not 30 yet. Uh, he's 30. <laughs> He's 30. Oh, boy. Well, you know, maybe third round. All right, so here's two questions. Is he still a top five pitcher for you? Um, I mean, I'd have to look at the numbers. I mean, it, with Harvey out and uh, – I mean, for me, I feel like the only obvious name that's better than him right now is Kershaw. Off the top of my head without, yeah, digging into the numbers, I don't think there's any other obvious guy that's an automatic that's better than Verlander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of some young guys that I like, but it, it's hard to put a young guy, you know, that far up until Plus, you know more. I think this is important. Since 2009, 240, 224, 251, 238, 218. Those are his innings totals. If you know you have a lock for at least 220 innings, over 200 strikeouts, that in itself adds a lot of value because the ERA, the whip, all of those are going to make a greater impact over that many innings. Plus, he gives you a lot more opportunities for wins and for strikeouts. And so that's big. Yeah, and that's why this season doesn't concern me too much. I mean, 218 innings, and he's looking like he's doing right now in the postseason. That, that seems pretty good to me. Uh, Verlander or Scherzer next year? You know, I'm going to go with Verlander because – for a scouting reason more than a numbers reason, um, you know, I, I know that we've all forgotten conveniently um, all the question marks around Scherzer um, and all the all the people that wondered if he could even hold up with the way that he delivers the ball and, and so on. But um, I haven't totally forgotten those. And I feel like, 
you know, he hasn't proven that he's the, the sort of horse that Verlander is. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to the innings and just a proven track record. I mean, right now, Max Scherzer, there's no doubt he's showing better skills, but Verlander has been doing it for longer, and he's a much more of a lock for 220 innings, whereas Scherzer has only thrown over 200 innings once this year. So I think that alone gives the nod for me to Verlander. All right, speaking of Tigers pitchers, this is one that actually had a major breakout year, Anibal Sanchez was all season absolutely ridiculous. 257 ERA, 115 whip, you know, missed some time due to injury. And he's another guy that has not even pitched 200 innings yet. So that's going to be a concern. But he gained velocity, uh, career high swinging strike rate as well. Is he a legit like three ERA guy? I, I mean, I'm worried about him. I'm worried about him. Um, you know, he had shoulder issues this year, and he's a, a labrum survivor. Um, so that that worries me a little bit. Anything, anytime the shoulder comes up and this guy's had rotator cuff surgery, I, that worries me. Another thing that worries me is that uh, he's been on a straight decline in terms of fastball usage over his career. And one of the, ben- one of the ways that he's pushed his strikeout rate forward and, and, and been so effective is by throwing more off-speed pitches. Now, He's mostly thrown more change-ups, and people think those are healthier than, than curveballs and sliders. So it's possible it's not as big a deal as if he was pumping you know, 35% sliders out there. But he still throws a lot of sliders, and the fact that there was a DL stint this year, nothing predicts DL stints in the future like DL stints in the past. I just see another DL stint next year, and um, you know if he... If he doesn't throw as many change-ups this next year as he did this year, then I don't see the same sort of ERA and swing strike rate and strikeout rate. So, you know, he's another guy who's um, he's coming up on 30. He's going to be 30 next year when the season starts. And uh, with that surgery in his past, I don't trust him even as much as, as Scherzer or Verlander. Obviously not Verlander. Yeah, his change-up has actually been absolutely ridiculous the last couple of years. Two straight years that the changeup has induced a swinging strike percentage over 20%. I didn't. I mean, when you think of the top uh, changeup pitchers in baseball, I don't think of Anibal Sanchez. Do you? I, you know, I, I'm sort of surprised. And, but when you see a guy who throws it almost a quarter of the time, that, that means that it's a pretty Must good be working. Pitch. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that pitch has been pretty amazing, and I guess he realized that, and that's why he's upped his usage. It's odd though that he throws sub fifty percent fastballs, considering he experienced a velocity jump this year at ninety three. If you graph his fastball usage, it's basically a straight decline, which you don't usually see for this type of a pitcher who is throwing ninety three now. It's more like a a Barry Zito, a Jamie Moyer, a Tom Glavin. They're like, all right, I can't get them out with eighty five mile an hour fastballs. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a common thing with with pitchers as they age. It's just uncommon to see the next column over to see the percentage usage go down and the velocity go up i think that's a weird combo because normally like you said it's it's not necessarily always 85 or whatever but it, normally it's something that you do as a veteran pitcher to 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 offset the fact that your fastball is being less effective you start throwing your junk more yeah and if you look at the steamer projection and i love the fact that steamer projections are already up 365 era only 173 innings, and I think that's the risk with Anibal Sanchez 
is that he's never thrown more than 196 innings. He has had shoulder issues in the past. It's never been perfect. We're always hearing about some sort of a shoulder problem. And home run per fly ball ratio, only 5.8%. So that had a lot to do with the sub-3 ERA. So although this year looks pretty much legit, a nice skills jump, a leap forward, I think there is risk. And he's, he figures to be very expensive next year. So he's not somebody that I could ever imagine me owning. Yeah, and another thing about him is um, that, uh, you know, as the frailest of the three Tiger um you know, aces or, or whatever, the three tiger horses, um, you know, it remains to be seen what two straight years of postseason play is going to do for him. Um, you know, I, you know, Verlander is a horse, so it's not such a big deal to add another 20 innings or something. But Sanchez, you know, if they make it all the way to the World Series, you know, that might tax him out a little bit. And you just look at even a guy like Kane, who's supposedly a horse, I think that you know that postseason run had something to do with his troubles this year. Very well could be, because, I mean, we heard about Kane dealing with some elbow issues, so you never know if that was just due to overuse, because he has a lot of innings under his belt as well. All right, let's move along to another playoff team, but a playoff team that's not in it anymore, and that's the Indians and Jason Kipnis. And Howard Bender this morning reminded us that for a second straight year, Kipnis pretty much collapsed. He wasn't a complete zero in the second half, but it was a significant decline. So in the first half this year, a 387 Woba, just a 317 mark in the second half, a lot more power and speed in the first half. And he did the exact same thing in 2012 with a 333 Woba in the first half, just a 293 mark in the second, and once again, more power and speed in the first half. What is going on here, and is this a trend that you think there's some legit valid reasons that it's going to continue. Well, I mean, I, you're not suggesting that uh, seasonal splits are, are predictive. Well, no, I'm not in this example, but I mean, it is possible that there are some players that for whatever reason they do wear down in the second half. I mean, would you think that it, it wouldn't affect anybody? You have to assume that there's got to be, some players that they do wear down for whatever reason. I'm not saying that we can possibly figure out if Kipnis is an example, but maybe there are. But I looked at his splits, and it's yeah, his BABIP has declined in the second half, but his power has just evaporated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's got to, some people don't have the endurance of others. That's got to be true. Um, you know, the, you wouldn't think that, you'd think that, you know, he'd figured out this full season thing considering that he had. You know, 670 plate appearances last year and 660 this year. So you kind of feel like, okay, maybe this guy has a handle on on what it takes to get through a full season. You know, I think that they're, he's a little bit streaky when it comes to power. I mean, I think we've seen other power outages from him. His, his first full season, he only had an ISO of 122. So, um, you know, people were wondering that season if he had any power at all, really. And um, I just, you know, I look at his history – and I see enough. I, I see enough uh, time spent with a with a isolated slugging percentage over 200, which is for me is a benchmark. That that means you have real power. You know, if you're in the 160s and 170s, I would just say you have average or a little slightly above average power. But 200 ISO that that makes me feel good. That's uh, that's a guy that can um, that can that can slug 500. You know, which is another old school sort of benchmark. 
And uh, so I, I see a guy that, um, you know, I would take the over on his home run total for Steamer, which is 14. And since he's stolen 30 bases two, two years in a row uh, with the almost exact same uh, success rate, I'd, uh, I'd take the over on the projected 21 stolen bases. So I, I'm, I'm going to comfortably pencil, pencil him in for a 20-30 season. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you in terms of the power. I think the power is legit. If you look at the season as a whole, a 12.4% homer per fly ball ratio, his batted ball distance completely supports that at 287 feet. So I think the power is absolutely legit. It's just hard for me to wrap my brain around the fact that he's a 30-steal threat. He's never shown that kind of speed in the minors. He's not a really fast guy. He's not a guy that you think is a big base stealer. So one of these years, I just feel like his steals are going to decline, and he's more of a 15 to 20 steal guy than a 30 steal guy. Now he's doing it efficiently. Only 14 caughts out of 61 successfuls in the last two years, and overall 66 successful out of 80 attempts. That's a pretty good success rate. So there's no real reason for him to suddenly stop. But that just concerns me. I would feel much more comfortable with the steamer steals projection. And and saying that the rest is just gravy. Yeah, I. Uh, but you know, he has more power than like an Altuve or something. So you're not you're not gonna you know take a five thirty out of him. So, um, you know, and I think, you know, I think there might be some year where he combines the the two good halves and and you know I see a guy that is not impossible to go thirty thirty. Um, you know, I, I, I really like Kipnis. So, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, he did have the high batting average on balls in play this year, but, you know, I don't really see anything that pops out of his batted ball mix that says, you know, that's not something he can, you know, can repeat. Um, and, uh, he has power and he has speed and he has a pretty good batted ball mix and yeah, you know, latch on to the 15 homers and the 30 stolen bases and, and, and remember that he has upside beyond it. Now, you know, I have seen in some experts leagues, like in labor, he went for the exact same price as Kinsler. Now, and I, I, going in, I was like, well, that seems like a lot. And, you know, I got Kinsler. Well, you know, he did better than Kinsler. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Kinsler, the oft injured, and even when he was on the field, he it was a bit of a disappointment. I know I, I owned him in several leagues. Um, so Kipnis is actually, yeah. Actually, probably overtaken Kinsler, huh? Yeah, I mean they're very similar, but Kinsler's speed kind of disappeared this year. Whereas Kipnis, I think Kipnis stole Kinsler's speed. That's what it was. <laughs> or, or you know, an age thing. You know, it's like a they're 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 uh, high fiving each other as one goes down and one goes up. This is true. Now I have a mental image of them high fiving each other on the field. It's the K connection. <laughs> Kinsler Kipnis. That's right. So yeah, I mean his batted ball mix is really good and lends itself to a high BABIP. So although I wouldn't feel comfortable projecting another 345, I definitely think he can beat a steamer of 311, and he's you know a 275 hitter or so. Um, also, if you look at his swinging strike rate, it was actually nearly identical to last year and suggests that the, the strikeout percentage increase was more fluky. And so I would also take the under on the steamer strikeout percentage. So what I'm hoping is that this bad second half, two in a row, kind of deflates the excitement about Kipnis next year, and he comes in a little undervalued. And 
I think he can pretty much repeat his overall fantasy value, but I think you might be able to get him for a cost under that. So, yeah, I was basically playing devil's advocate here because I'm a fan of Kipnis, and I think his overall skills package, I'm a real fan of it. Uh, Do you think that he could finish better than 37th overall, or do you pretty much think he's end of the third, early fourth round safe bet there? Um. Yeah, it's hard without looking at the whole board, but I, I, I think he seems like a easy third, third rounder. Yeah, because you know, Pedroia lost power. Uh, Cano seems like the only second baseman who's a who's a definite first rounder. Uh, I mean, Pedroia could get that thumb fixed and and could be a sneaky second round pick next year, but he's gonna be a second rounder. Kinsler's gonna fall to the third round. Um, I don't know who I'm missing. Altuve is great, but you know he's he's doesn't have much upside beyond what he's doing right now, and he doesn't have much power. And you know the batting average wasn't quite there this year. So I think you've got basically Cano in the first, uh, Pedroia in the second, and uh, Kinsler and Kipnis in the third. Yeah, and you might actually be a little optimistic on Pedroia. I wouldn't be shocked if he fell to the third, Kinsler to the late third, early fourth. And and that leaves Kipnis, who also has upside because he's still he's still young. I mean, he's going to first turn 27 next year, and with those 200 ISOs in the minors and in 2011, he could experience a power surge, maybe a 15% home run per fly ball, and all of a sudden he's a 25-30 guy um, batting 300. I mean, he has more upside in in power and and speed categories than uh, than. Anybody named Kip and then Cano, because Cano, I mean, in terms of power. Um, and, uh, you know, he has more upside than Pedroia, I would say, because, you know, the thing that Pedroia does have that Kipnis doesn't have right now is a, is a great lineup around him. So, you know, usually great runs in RBI totals. Um, but, you know, I think that's just going to improve for Kipnis. I mean, the team got better this year. His his runs batted and got better this year. So, um, you know, I, I think he... I think he might be second on my board next year. Yeah, I, I would venture to guess as well. If not, he would be very close in a grouping that includes Kinsler and Pedroia. Yeah. And it's basically going to be a pick em. Do you want the young upside or do you want the more safer established vet? All right, let's move along to some more analysis of the value leaderboard that you had published earlier this week. And we're going to move to the pitcher side of the ledger as we talked about the hitters on Tuesday. So first up in the leader of the most profitable starting pitcher was none other than Patrick Corbin, who finished 77th overall in value, which was a mid-7th round pick. And the most amazing thing about Corbin, which I tweeted after the season, is that his first half, a 235 ERA, his second half, a 519 ERA, and yet his skills were essentially identical, the exact same K-to-walk ratio, the exact same XFIP, but it just goes to show how luck has a ways of turning around, and and that's just what happens, is that what luck you get, that luck is taken away, and that's exactly what happened to Corbin, and this might end up getting him undervalued next year because people are going to think the first half was a fluke, and they're going to remember that second half. Yeah, that was one thing I was actually going to say was that uh, it probably you know went too far in the second half. There's 
things that he does well. I mean, he, he gets an above average amount of ground balls. He has great control. He actually does decently in terms of swinging strike rate. Um, you know, he's a lefty, so some teams match up poorly against him. Uh, 92 with the fastball, good, a really good slider and enough of a change that, you know, righties don't pummel him. So, um, you know, I, I think he's a, a pretty good pitcher, but, oh, that's really interesting. I just saw the steamer ERA. I set the over-under at 3.7 um, in terms of ERA on Twitter, and we had a big back and forth, and people agreed that it was a decent over-under, um, even though a lot of them took the under. Steamer's hitting it right on the nail there. Yeah, and I usually say that my own pod projections agree most with Steamer, and uh, I don't have my projections from this year out, but I'm pretty sure my projection for Patrick Corbin was in this 370 to 380 range this year. So, I mean, he basically posted very similar skills to 2012, very similar skills to what I think I projected for him, and I, I think it's legit. I think he's very solid in terms of all the skill metrics. And uh, 370, I think, is a perfect over-under as well. You know, I, the, the one thing I will say, for, for a ground baller, I wish that he had a better ground ball rate. I mean, 46.7, you know, if you look at his Sierra, the reason his Sierra is higher than his FIP and his XFIP is because Sierra wants, um, you know, gives you sort of... Uh, extra credit for the extreme. Extra right? credit for the further you go, right. Yeah. So a 50% ground ball is that much better than a, than a 48% guy. So uh, that's why this DR is a little bit higher, um, and uh, and I wonder why he doesn't he didn't get more strikeouts this year with the ten point seven percent swinging strike rate. But um, these are the kind of things that separate you from your sort of one, two, and three. And if I can get him, buy him at a three price, then uh, then I will. Yeah, there's a concern that it, uh, he absolutely dominated. I don't even think "dominate" is a good enough word against lefties. His xFIP in forty seven innings. A 198 mark versus lefties. And he basically doubled his strikeout rate against lefties compared to righties. Righties, a 392 XFIP, which is still, you know, reasonable. But when the majority of the lineups that you face are going to be right-handed, I mean, that's a significant difference. And I think maybe part of it stems from the fact that he threw his changeup less this year. Not significantly, because he never threw his changeup that much. But only 10% of the time, I would assume that he threw it a little more often against righties. But maybe he should bring that out a little more often. I mean, his slider was so good, and that's why he upped the usage this year. But I, I, I'd like to see him a little bit more effective against righties before thinking that he... Yeah, a 390x flip is not that great, actually. I mean, that's that's getting close to average. And if you know if they start stacking the, the lineup with, again, with righties against them... There are certain positions, actually, on the field where you need to be a lefty. So... Um, you almost never can get a, a full righty lineup, but um, uh, I would say that uh, you know the changeup is a little bit important, and uh, I definitely don't value him as a one or a two. All right, so he earned value in the middle of the, the seventh round. Where are you thinking off the top of your head that he's a, a reasonable choice? Round ten, would you say? Yeah, because you know when I. By the tenth round, I, I like to have a, a like pretty much six hitters or seven hitters. I like to have about six or seven hitters and um, and three starters. So uh, you know, I might sometimes mix in a closer over a, a seventh hitter or something. But 
I like to have three starters. So, you know, I could maybe pick him in the 10th, but, um, you know, I wouldn't be, I, you know, in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth rounds, I want to be taking, you know, uh, number twos that could be number ones, fallen number ones, you know, guys like Cole Hamels, um, even a Matt Kane in the eighth or something. You know, those are the guys I, I pick. I, I wouldn't pick a guy like this, especially coming off a season that some people might overvalue. Um, I wouldn't pick him until around the 10th. Yeah, it's funny because for me, rounds, let's say, 10 to 12 or so, there's a humongous clump of pitchers that are all, let's say, 360, 370 ERA, pretty good strikeout rate. Guys that it's just like there's not a whole lot of difference and it's take your pick. And since there's so many of them, I'm just never really rushing out to to pick my one guy and target one guy. I want to just take whoever drops and, and get my sleepers later in the 15th and 16th. So even though Corbin, I think, would be fairly valued in the 10th, I probably wouldn't end up drafting him. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to see what's out there. A lot of times in the 10th and 11th, I'm actually taking my first closer. Um, so, because uh, I, you know, I do like to mix up my closers. I, I like, I know the closers aren't as worth as much as other people, as other uh, positions, but, you know, I don't, I've, I've had enough seasons where I had terrible closers, like all three or four of them were terrible. And I've seen that it kind of, it can erode your ERA and your whip and your strikeouts. So um, I take a shot on a, on a late, you know, number one closer usually around that time. So I might push him down a little bit too. Joe Borowski, Sean Chacon. I've had seasons like that. And, and you, you, your team, your team ERA will blow up real quick if you've got too many of those guys. And plus your hair is going to be going gray very soon. <laughs> Yeah, because you you're like all over the waiver wire, and it gets exhausting. And then if you have an FAAB or, or or a limited amount of moves, you start burning through those, trying to cobble together three good closers. Which, you know, a lot of times you can do that. I mean, you can do it, but you either have to be an eagle eye on top of the waiver wire all the time. It's easier for us because it's our job. But you know, uh, you know, there are other ways that people can limit your ability to do that. And, you know, I don't want to spend my entire FAAB on closers. Yeah, and it's so frustrating because you're yelling at him. You're like, is it that hard to go one inning without giving up a run? Come on now, you're <laughs> raising 20. Just don't give up a run. It's one run. Just don't give it up. <laughs> one shutout inning. I think you can manage. Yeah. All right, so next up on the most profitable list is Francisco Liriano who finished 71st in overall value as an end-of-round sixer. Now, we recently discussed him, so we won't talk too much about him, but where do, where do you feel comfortable taking him? How would you compare him to Patrick Corbin, actually? Well, I'd take him ahead because I, just, I think even in a bad Liriano year, he'll strike out more batters. Um, I think that the, the home park will you know keep the homers down, which has been a trouble for Liriano in the past. You know, there's obviously more injury risk with Liriano, um, so that that's the reason why you can even put them in the same sentence, I think. Otherwise, Liriano would be way out in front. Yeah, I think Liriano's going to win in ERA, but Corbin's got the whip advantage just because he's got sterling control. And Liriano, his zone percentage is, is ridiculous, but that's also because his stuff is so good that he gets hitters to chase. And and so it's not exactly the, the best usage of zone percentage predicting that his walk rate is going to rise next year. But yeah. overall, I'm going to go Liriano as well just because I like those strikeouts. Yeah, I got it. Looking at these numbers, I, I think I might have to sell them in my dynasty league. 
<laughs> I, I picked him up off a free agency in an 18-team, 25-keeper. And, you know, it's always when you get a guy like this, you, it's always like, but he could be my number two again next year. But, you know, if someone gives me something nice, I'm, uh, I will part ways with him and, and thank him for his service. All right. Moving along, this is a surprise. Ricky Nolasco was a third most profitable pitcher, earning 133rd overall value beginning of round 12. Uh, he suffered from Dave Bush syndrome for many, many years. And just like Javier Vasquez, who came to the Braves, had that one big year, all of a sudden he drank the Kool-Aid and he finally had another good year. Can you believe that this is only his second sub-four ERA season in his entire career, Ricky Nolasco? Doesn't his name make you think of a guy who's been better than that in his career? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always I've always liked him because if you, I mean, the, one of the best predictors of ERA is is quick ERA, which is just strikeout rate minus walk rate, and that's it. And if you just look at his career, there's some years that weren't so great, especially the last couple of years of the Marlins. His strikeout rate really plummeted. But at the beginning of his career, he was he was striking out nine and eight per nine and not walking anybody, and it was just like, come on. But then he was. You know, those years he was giving up homers, so, you know, which I think his fastball is not great. And then, you know, he stopped giving up the homers, but then he didn't strike anybody out. So it's like, you know, he started pitching lower in the zone, I guess. I think he's, he's just one of these guys that has a bad fastball. He has some other good, he has some good breaking stuff, and he's just trying to figure out the best mix of, of, of that. And basically, he's throwing the fastball less than ever this year, and he had his best year. Yeah, I don't really know exactly what happened to the strikeout rate. It declined in 2011, declined further in 2012. He did lose a little bit of fastball velocity. It didn't return this year, but his strikeout rate did rebound somewhat. So I don't know what the deal is. He did throw his slider a bit more often. Uh, I don't know if that is enough to explain it. His swinging strike rate did rebound, though, and it, it tied a career high. So clearly the strikeout rate was legit. I just don't know what he really did differently to uh, enjoy that rebound. And Steamer wants him to just do the same thing again. Yeah, st see, Steamer, this is, and I'm, I'm going to toot my book because uh, Projecting Acts, just because this is exactly what I think is the flaws of computer projection systems. Steamer never wants to believe that the so-called luck metrics, they want to believe that it's basically 99.9% .9 luck. And so guys like Ricky Nolasco, Javier Vasquez, Matt Cain, they're going to always be wrong about because they just assume that the luck is going to regress and standardize and they're going to be basically luck neutral. And, and there are guys that they can consistently underperform or outperform their luck metrics. And Nolasco, up until this year, had been that type of a pitcher. We don't know. I mean, Steamer could be right, of course. But I'm guessing that Steamer was projecting this type of an ERA every single year. Yeah, I think it's mostly, I, I'm actually, it's starting to sort of coalesce for me. I'm looking at his stats. So he used to be more of a fly ball pitcher earlier, and he gave up more, he gave up a ton of home runs, but he got more strikeouts for it. So then I guess he probably started pitching lower in the zone. His ground ball rate went up, his, his home run rate went down, and his strikeouts went down. So this is the first year where he's found the ability to sort of pitch low in the zone, get a decent strikeout rate, and still keep the ground balls. But as you can see, it's his worst ground ball rate in the last three years. So uh, I just think he's, there's something marginal about him. 
you know, even with his great control, there's something marginal about the other stuff that's going on. And I wouldn't trust him to repeat. Um, I might pick him as a final two or three type pitcher, but um, I'm not pick. I'm not picking him in that Corbin crowd. No. Yeah, I'm thinking. I mean, my main money league is a 12 team mixed league. I wouldn't be surprised if he lasted into the reserve round because he's broken so many hearts. I don't think anybody trusts him at this point. So I'm sure most people are just looking at him and assuming. Oh, whatever. His ERA ended up down at 370, but this is not a 370 ERA guy. I mean, this is Ricky Nolasco. One year isn't enough to turn things around, and he probably is going to be just some reserve pick. That's what I'm thinking. I'm not. I'm not going to draft him. I mean, he's in a whole group of guys, high three ERA, mess strikeouts. I'd much rather have a young guy with upside than a Ricky Nolasco. Oh, and you know what? Uh, this is a sort of important thing here. Uh, he's unsigned next year. So uh, his team is going to be important, very important. Very important. If he goes to the AL or something, I wouldn't touch him. So or, or a hitter's park. Yeah. So that's something to keep your eye out. But if he returns to the Dodgers, and you know we're we're coming to like that pick right before the reserve pick, and I know that somebody in my league would take a a chance on him as a reserve. I think I might uh, jump ahead and get him with my last non-reserve pick. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you know expert think goes a little bit too far and you know sometimes you need to take a jump in on a guy who pitches in Dodger Stadium ahead of what's going to be probably a pretty good lineup and you know might be worst case a guy that you can slot in and out according to the schedule yeah I can't say that he's he wouldn't be worth it he's just one of those boring guys I mean who who looks at the roster and is excited by Ricky Nolasco's name nobody it just oh Ricky Nolasco all right fine he's around eh I'll take him Kind of reminds me of like a Joe Blanton, although Joe Blanton also always underperformed his uh, peripherals. But it's just a guy that is just so blah that you don't get excited about drafting on your team. And so that's an issue for me. It just doesn't get me excited. And I want to be excited about my team. All right. Speaking of excited, Chris Tillman was a guy I was not excited about. I even wrote an article before the season saying that Chris Tillman was not a sleeper. Oops, I was wrong about that one. He was the fourth most, most profitable pitcher this year, finishing 94th in overall value, which was end of round eight value. How uh, were you wrong on him too? Were you as pessimistic as I was? Um, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I traded away him away for um, I forget what I added to it, but I traded him away for uh, Mezzarocco in that same league where I picked up Liriano. I traded him away for Mezzarocco and Hellickson about halfway through the season and and basically was throwing stuff at the TV as he uh, as he pitched well into the end of the season but I I I'm not really changing my mind too much. Yeah, I don't really understand him because if you look at his Sierra, he actually did not outperform his Sierra that significantly, but he doesn't get swinging strikes. He doesn't throw first strikes. His velocity for a right-hander is average to below average and no pitch really stands out. He's a fly ball pitcher. I just don't get it. I mean, the entire skills package just screams average at best pitcher to me. Yeah, it's it's, it's just really weird. I, I I've got you know his um, his pitching page on Brooks Baseball open, and, and th- there's some really weird things going on in here. So first of all, if you if you watch Tillman, the first thing you think of is curve, right? You think of that curveball. Yeah, I mean, he does have some pretty good breaking pitches, and I also loved him when he was throwing 95 last year, but that right. evaporated. 
Well, the weird thing about that curveball is it gets no whiffs. It's like really not a strikeout pitch. I guess it's a big old honk and curveball. It might have one of those humps where people are like, oh, curveball, I'm not going to swing at it. It's a knee, block, a knee buckler. It's true, and it actually has a terrible swing rate. So, um, you know, people only swing at his curveball a quarter of the time, which is a really low number. And, and if they do swing, you know, they put it in play. The one nice thing is that they it's a – it's a huge grounder pitch. It's almost a 70% grounder pitch. So, you know, and it doesn't give up a lot of homers. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good pitch and it sets up other pitches. So what happens is it sets up his four seam and his four seam, despite not having great velocity, actually has a great uh, swinging strike rate. So, you know, I guess if they're, if you're looking for genius in Tillman's approach, the genius is everybody's worried about the curveball. Everybody's thinking about the curveball, and even the curveball is a ball most of the time. Um, you know, when they do swing at it, they put it on play on the ground. And since they're thinking about the curveball, when the fastball sort of sneaks by them, they they swing and miss. So, and the fastball, if it, if they don't swing and miss, has a great um, ball rate. So he has got good control on the on the on the four seam, and he's got a good curve. But other than that, I mean, I don't know if that's enough because you need to get. You know, 10%, it's almost a 10% whiff rate on the four seam, and the average is 7%. That's that's okay, but, you know, if you had a real legit curve, like a, a Wainwright curve or a Colt, those guys are 25 20%, you know, that's a lot of whiffs, you know, and his curveball gets 5% whiffs. So there's just not something he can rely on. If, if, if teams just decide, okay, I'm going to sit fastball, and if I see the curve coming at all, psh, I'm not swinging at that thing. Then, then you've got a 91-mile-an-hour fastball that, you know, by all accounts is a pretty regular fastball, I think. Um, and, uh, and you can put that in play pretty easily. So I, I, I'm, uh, I'm with you. I don't think he's going to necessarily even repeat what he did this year. Yeah, 16 wins. It's just going to be another thing that inflates his value next year. So to me, he's pretty much a lock to be overvalued. Now, I'm not saying completely ignore him. Obviously, if he's around cheaply in the late rounds, by all means, take a shot. I don't think he's going to completely implode necessarily, but I can't imagine drafting him on any teams, and I, I wouldn't look toward targeting him. All right, let's talk about our last profitable starting pitcher, and that's Justin Masterson, who finished 88th overall in value, which was a mid-eighth round pick. And Masterson was no real stranger to this type of a season. He did post a 321 ERA in 2011. Last year, his luck reversed, and then this year, his skills were the best ever. And it, it really comes down to a strikeout rate. I mean, everything else is pretty similar and, and good. Acceptable control, extreme ground balls, we love to see that. But that strikeout rate, he gained 7%, basically, and he, he struck out over a batter per inning. Yeah, I mean the, the the sinker and the slider are the are like two of the top three platoon split pitches, and that's all he throws is a sinker and a slider. So I mean, you know, he had good control this year, command in terms of you know taking the slider out and and and, and using it against lefties. But um, you know, homers off of lefties are going to be an issue. Uh, batting average on balls in play because of lefties, um, you know, battering his his slider. That's always going to be an issue. So. You know, uh, Steamer puts him down for a 387, 133, uh, 387 ERA, 133 whip. Uh, I have no complaints with that. I I don't think that's really 
something you want to own. So I'm trying to figure out how he managed this huge strikeout rate jump because his swinging strike rate is basically league average. Let me see. Yeah, it's essentially league average, and it definitely does not match up with striking out over a batter per inning. So I think this is either the ultimate fluke or somehow he managed to get a lot of called strikes, but his pitches don't induce called strikes. So I don't know how that would happen. So I'm checking baseball reference right now to see if maybe he, yeah, he got a lot more called strikes than he's ever done in his entire career. A career high looking strike rate. I can't imagine that that's sustainable. A slider does not induce a lot of uh, called strikes, certainly not a sinker. So I don't know how that happened, and that just seems pretty fluky to me. And so I think he's going to decline back into the, the 7 to 8 strikeout per 9 range like he averages for his career. I mean, yeah, the thing that's uh, frustrating for him, I guess, is that um, the two pitches he does have are so good that it's that's why he's not a reliever. I mean, the pitches that he has are really good. The sinker gets above average whiffs and is a great ground ball pitch. I mean, like uh, 12 out of 17 um, balls in play are ground balls. So that's really, really good. And the slider gets 17% whiffs and um, and 50% ground ball. So those are two really, really good pitches that if he was a closer, you know, he'd be elite, I think. Um, but, you know, as a starter, you, you, you just see that he's, he's, I think he's borderline. I don't know. I, I still think he's good, even expecting some regression to skills. Control can come and go, but when you're inducing ground balls 55 to 60% of the time, there's a whole lot of room for error. We can see what happens when things go wrong and he's got some bad luck on balls and playing stranding runners and stuff, but I think he's a legit you know, 350 to 370 ERA guy, just without as many strikeouts. Yeah. So, I mean, round eight, no. I'm not taking him around round eight. But I will group him in with the Patrick Corbin kind of tier, ten rounds 10 to 12. Throw him in that tier. And this is exactly why I'm not taking Patrick Corbin there, because there's so many of these types of pitchers that there's just no reason to target one of them. You just go for whoever ends up you know, falling and into being uh, a bargain and undervalued. You agree, Masterson and Corbin, you know, reasonably similar in terms of value for next year? Yeah, I think there's a little bit more risk with Whip um, with Masterson. So if, if they were both available and it was like the 11th or 12th round, I, I would take Corbin. Um, you know, because I guess, you know, there is some risk with Corbin not throwing the change enough, but I, he's younger, so I, and he throws the change at least 5% of the time. So I believe that it could go up to 10%. And he could, you know, iron out those splits a little bit and work on his changeup in the offseason, blah, blah, blah. Uh, whereas Masterson told me he's given up. He does, he's not, he's not going to learn a changeup. If there's a 1% of changeups in there, those are mis-labeled mis, you know, uh, two-seamers. And, uh, and he's, he's not going to worry about that. <laughs> well, a 345 ERA this year isn't going to help him make him change his mind. So <laughs> he's succeeding without the changeup, I'm sure he's not going to decide, oh, it's time to break out a changeup. Whereas, you know, if we're going to go into this sort of psychology type stuff, you know, the end of the season for Corbin might actually give him um, a reason to, to work on the changeup in the offseason. Yeah, and that a lot of times is a, a good motivator and, and 
that's what causes players to really rebound off of a down year. B.J. Upton, for example, he's going to be working on a swing more than ever before just based on this year's disaster. And who knows? Maybe we see a career year next year based on the work that he put in in the offseason. <laughs> he's so he's so dead to so many people. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think in in some leagues he'll you know he'll be a really good like last round pick. Like I mean, why not? <laughs> if I get him in the last round. I would be a happy man. Yeah, I mean, he could really you know worst case be you know suck some stolen bases out of the pool on your on your bench. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Hey, if you can get a potential 15-20 guy conservatively in the last round, then you got to do it. You right. Take that risk. All right, well, that's a wrap, folks. So join us again next Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.